You're listening to a TVO podcast. Hi, Karina. Hi, Pippa. Uh, so I should probably start this episode with a disclaimer slash apology, um, which is for my mother, because she suggested this word truly years ago, and <laughs> I rejected it outright. I thought it was like too simple, too face value for the show. No, mom, we're not doing that <laughs> word. No. Yeah, we're not going to do an episode on a word that means one thing and has always meant that one thing through all time. I think that was our... Uh, our objection to it, right? Yeah, I think so. But as I learned in, in researching for this one, and hopefully as we'll show you in the episode, the word deaf is way more contested and loaded and nuanced than I had realized. So sorry, Marjorie. <laughs> yeah, tail yeah. between my legs. Very sorry. But let's get into it. Yeah. So if you didn't read the name of the episode before you clicked, we're talking today about the word deaf. Yes. And just to walk back what I said a second ago about words that we choose for this show, <laughs> um, deaf is actually an example of a word that's meant pretty much the same thing for ages. And I mean, like, truly for ages, it's meant uh, lacking the sense of hearing since before the 12th century. The word deaf is in the Canterbury Tales, actually, and in Shakespeare and in the Bible. It's a really old word. But it was um, pronounced closer to deaf until about the, the 18th century, by the way. A little Good to know. fact for you. Um, and while the meaning hasn't changed, our thinking has. And that's why we're doing this, this episode. Mm-hmm. So that's the basic history of the word. But what's unique about this word is the difference between deaf with a lowercase d and deaf with a capital D. Right. And this is why I wanted to do this episode. Um, I'll admit I didn't actually know about this distinction before just this past year. And I definitely didn't know how contentious it was. I had actually heard about the distinction between uh, lowercase deaf and uppercase deaf, I think just through uh, copy editing jobs. That makes sense. Yeah. Uh, so if you didn't know about this, the difference is generally defined as uh, lowercase d, deaf, is sort of like the medical definition. Uppercase d, deaf, is a more sociological term, I guess I'll say. It means someone who belongs to the deaf community or is, quote, culturally deaf. So this varies a little bit how it's defined exactly, but most sources agree that certain things like using sign language are essential to being considered capital D, deaf. We'll get more into this distinction a bit later, it is really interesting and really, really charged. But to get into the nuances of what it means to actually navigate these labels for yourself, I spoke with a deaf podcaster named Caroline Minx. People kind of think of deafness as a switch that is flipped. Either you are hearing or you are deaf and there's nothing in between. And the truth is that most of us are in the in-between. That's Caroline. I first found their work through their audio fiction podcast, actually, which is called Seen and Not Heard which tells the story of someone losing their hearing as they're kind of approaching adulthood. Uh, They released a special episode on that podcast's feed that was a talk they did called Representing Deafness in an Audio Medium. And it goes through like misconceptions around deafness and audio makers. Uh, We'll link to this one in the show notes because it kind of blew my mind. Uh, Caroline told me about their history with the word deaf. It took me a really long time to even apply the word deaf to myself. I kind of 
hid the fact that I was losing my hair. I started losing my hearing when I was in like my senior year of high school. So I'd have been about 17, 18. And that was when I first noticed like something's not right. But I kind of wrote it off as I was like, okay, well, maybe that's just sort of what happens as you start getting older. Because I I don't know, I thought that was that was getting older. Um, <laughs> but at the time, I was like, maybe that's just normal. It's It's fine. And as it progressed, I I eventually in my 20s would allow myself to call myself hard of hearing. So hard of hearing, uh, also referred to as the acronym HOH, is another term that people use. It can mean that someone has really any amount of hearing loss, but they'll likely use spoken language to communicate. Even though when I got my hearing tested, I'm firmly in what's considered moderately deaf territory. So my hearing is like roughly slightly less than half of what would be considered normal hearing. So that's, I absolutely am allowed to call myself deaf, but I didn't really feel like I could because I didn't, I still don't really know much sign language. I wasn't raised in the deaf community. I wasn't born deaf. There were all these reasons I was giving myself, which were all baloney, but I was giving myself a lot of reasons why I couldn't use that word for myself. So deafness has a range, mild, moderate, severe, and profound. And Caroline is classified, as they said, as moderate. And now Caroline says that they do use deaf with a lowercase d for themselves. And it has been really empowering to be able to say, yeah, I'm deaf and I do this and this is who I am and this is part of my experience. And it's a big part of my identity, regardless of my connection to the actual deaf community. Deafness is still part of my life. But even now, the labels are still complicated. If I'm speaking with another deaf person, I might use hard of hearing for myself. But if I'm talking to someone who maybe is also mildly to moderately deaf and has had more of a similar experience to me, I'll probably refer to myself as deaf. But then if I'm talking to hearing people, that also depends because if I need them to understand, no, seriously, I can't hear you. (laughs) I'll just be like, I'm deaf because if I say I'm hard of hearing, they'll just yell. There's an amount of clarity that comes with the term deaf. And some of that has to do with misunderstanding of what deafness can be and the fact that deafness is a spectrum. If I say I'm deaf, a hearing person who doesn't know any better is going to be like, oh, they can't hear at all. So I better make sure I'm looking at them and speaking clearly. But if I say, oh, I'm hard of hearing, they, they might not even think to tap my shoulder. As you heard Caroline say before, deafness is not a switch that is flipped. It's not like a binary deaf or hearing it's more of a spectrum. And you said before that Caroline uses lowercase d deaf, right? Yeah. And we defined the difference before. Uh, lowercase d would be more literal medical term. Uppercase mm-hmm. d is more about belonging to the culture. And while the word deaf itself is super old, this distinction between uh, capitalized and not capitalized only came about in 1975. So the first use of capital D, deaf, was in a paper by James Woodward, a linguist and deaf studies scholar, and the paper was called How Are You Gonna Get to Heaven If You Can't Talk with Jesus? The Educational Establishment versus the Deaf Community. That's pretty good. Good title. Um, And in that paper, he included a blurb explaining that he was using the capital D to refer to deaf people claiming membership in a community, right? And, mm-hmm. and he officially coined the term deaf capital versus deaf lowercase in a paper a few years later in 1978. 
And since then, it's become kind of contentious. It has, yeah. And one of the reasons is because Woodward himself is a hearing person. Yeah, so the designation of who belongs to a community came from outside of that community, which could be kind of tricky. Yeah, exactly. Caroline actually talked to me a little bit about this sensitive definition as well. There is a little bit of conversation about moving away from uppercase and lowercase entirely, but it's it's very case by case. It, it seems to be more of an individual choice than a community choice at this point. Some folks are feeling that it creates some division to have like, oh, I am culturally deaf and you are not. And I have really mixed feelings on it because one of the things with cultural deafness that we see happen a lot, a lot of people are excluded from it from childhood. There are people who have been deaf since birth who don't consider themselves culturally deaf because they were denied the opportunity to be. So a lot of the reasoning behind kind of ending that division is so that we can welcome people who were forcibly kept out and just make it a a more welcoming kind of community. But at the same time, you know, the flip side of that seems to be, but sometimes it's important to have these definitions and these divisions so that we can understand where people are coming from and their own experience. And it's very complicated. (laughs) Yeah, it's very complicated. So as we've established, there's a diversity of deaf experiences, right? And therefore, a diversity of opinions on the right words to use. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to find any kind of consensus out there. Um, There have been kind of attempts. At the end of 2019, there was a paper from a bunch of American deaf studies scholars that was called To Deaf or Not to Deaf, That is the Question. And we'll link to that in the show notes. They surveyed a bunch of people for this paper to try to come to a consensus from within the community. And the result was basically that most participants agreed that a naming convention would be beneficial, but there wasn't a strong consensus towards what that would be, if it would be the Woodward Convention, or using the lowercase d for everyone, or using the uppercase d for everyone. There is potentially movement towards a new convention, but there isn't one right now. Right. Um, That said, the Deafhood Foundation in 2017 said they use capital D, deaf, as an all-inclusive term. Right. And, And actually said that historically, that capital D, deaf reflected, quote, a certain type of elite identity and language, right? Mm. Um, In 2018, the National Deaf Center proposed using the lowercase d in a similar way. And both of these are American organizations. The Canadian Association of the Deaf seems to keep the Woodward distinction of of lowercase, uppercase in their terminology guides. Okay, so you said the word elite. Mm -hmm. And I want to pick up on this because it's really interesting. Yeah. This came up last year when Netflix released a show called Deaf You. Did you see or hear about this at all? No, I didn't. Okay, I didn't at the time either, but in my research I came across it and now I really want to watch it. Okay, so the show was made by Niall DeMarco, a past winner of America's Next Top Model, actually. Oh, wow. You remember that season? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and it's basically a reality show, or if I'm being nicer, a docu-series that follows this group of friends at Gallaudet University, which is a renowned college for the deaf and hard of hearing. In the show, they use this term, quote, deaf elites, spelled with a capital D, capital E, deaf elites, to define a group of students there who come from multi-generational deaf families. They attend all deaf schools. They have access to the deaf community. And 
The question of access to deaf culture is really important here. And to me, it makes the lowercase, uppercase deaf distinction way more complicated because, of course, a community or a culture should have the power to define themselves however they want to, right? Right. But then if there's sort of a group of elites who have special access to this culture, easier access, the people without access would would then be not elite, right? Yeah. So it's sort of a question of privilege mm-hmm. within the deaf community. I mentioned before that the capital D definition often means that a person signs. And this is a good example. Not every deaf or hard of hearing person is going to grow up with a family or a community who can sign around them or have access to go to a school where they're taught to sign, right? It's said that 90 or more percent of deaf kids are born to hearing parents. And in some of these cases, those hearing parents want to, quote, like, fix this aspect of their child, right? And, like, to be clear, parents in this situation are doing what they think is best for their child, but it's very complicated to be a hearing parent of a deaf child and make the right choices when you're getting all sorts of different advice, I I expect, right? Right, yeah. And so some parents in this situation will try to get their kid to communicate verbally or use hearing aids or even get them cochlear implants. So I understand the the impulse of parents in this situation wanting to to kind of medically fix the the problem, quote unquote. Totally. But this idea of implanting kids with cochlear implants when they're so young that they're not making the choice themselves is extremely controversial. And there's a longstanding debate in the deaf community between these two schools of thought, which are called oralism and manualism. And basically, oralism advocates argue that deaf or hard of hearing people should learn to communicate orally by lip reading or by speaking. Mm -hmm. And the manualism advocates argue that they should learn to communicate manually with their hands, so sign language. Oralism advocates saw sign language as less evolved than spoken languages. And there's a really long history of them actually banning sign language in schools. Uh, The oralism side was actually led in great part by Alexander Graham Bell, who actually himself had a deaf or hard of hearing mother and wife. Uh, He also held some very gross eugenics arguments about the risks uh, inherent in sign language. Mm, Yeah. Not great. No, not great. And not allowing kids to learn language fluently, whether that's spoken or signed language um, in those really early developmental years is really harmful. Mm -hmm. There's even a condition called language deprivation syndrome. And that's when people who lack uh, like full access to language for about the first five years of their lives will suffer long-term consequences. I mean, like their mental health, neurological development, even memory development can suffer. Right. And in extreme cases, some of these people are unable to develop language fluency long-term, even if they're taught later in life. Oh, wow. Boston University Deaf Studies researchers suggest that the number of deaf kids experiencing some level of language deprivation might be as high as 70%, which is pretty staggering. And a 2010 survey from Gallaudet University suggested that at most 40% of deaf children have families that sign at home. That's really not a lot. But also culturally, right? Like some consider ASL and other sign languages to be at risk of extinction. Yeah, and one reason people cite for this possible extinction is cochlear implants themselves. Mm-hmm. And like we said, those are really contentious. Um, they're, they're basically 
electronic devices that are surgically implanted, and they give、uh, the user this modified experience of sound. And within the deaf community, using an implant is seen by some as like a betrayal of deaf culture.、Mm. Right? Some deaf activists even talk about cochlear implant use as a form of genocide, especially when it comes to kids getting them. Right, because they can't like give informed consent. Right, Caroline pointed out that things like implants are personal choices, but yeah, it's not as clean of a choice when a parent is choosing for a young child. But when you see these like quote unquote inspirational videos of these like toddlers getting their implants activated, and oh, they can hear now, it's like no, that's not what's happening.、Um, And it kind of perpetuates this idea that we should be repaired as early as possible, rather than that the world should make any kind of accommodation,、um, because they are not cures. That's I think the thing that people don't understand. They don't make you hearing. They really don't. And this is a big misconception、uh, that I held previously to researching this.、Uh, for some kids who get cochlear implants, they are still not able to hear well enough to acquire language at pace with their hearing peers. For example, there was a 2009 study of French-speaking children with implants, and it found that only 50% of them were on par with their peers in vocabulary, and less than half of them when it came to the sentence level. So, it's clear that it's important for deaf kids to have access to language, but also for people who become deaf at different ages. Sometimes this is referred to as being late deafened. Caroline actually mentioned this when I asked, "What would it take for them to move from using the small D deaf to the big D deaf for themselves?" And they told me, "Like learning a language by yourself is a huge task, right? Especially when you don't have that built-in network."、Mm-hmm. And also trying to join a community later in life as someone who has lost their hearing in adulthood—that、uh, sounds super daunting. Yeah, it does. I mean, making friends as an adult is already hard.、Um, yeah. Without a bunch of complicated identity layers and like learning an entirely new language, right? A hundred percent. It would be a very vulnerable task trying、mm-hmm. to make this leap for yourself. Yeah. So since we're a language podcast, I just want to mention quickly how fascinating and complex sign language is. Yes, it's so cool. It's so cool. There are up to three hundred different types of sign language around the world that are all distinct from each other. This blew my mind. American Sign Language (ASL) is unintelligible from British Sign Language because they developed independently in、yeah. their respective countries. That's so, wild. While the speaking populations both use English as one of their primary languages, these two sign languages are totally distinct from each other. Yeah, yeah. And also, I think this is a big misconception that I definitely held myself. Sign languages are not based on spoken language. Like ASL is not a translation of English. It wasn't modeled on English. It was developed within the deaf community in America. It has its own grammar system. It has its own sentence structure. Its own slang, and there's even regional dialects or accents. Yeah, I found、so、this、cool. part really interesting. It's like they're talking about how people move their hands, right? Like if you move <sighs> it with like a sharp quality or a smooth, flowy quality, like it's like having an accent in speaking. <sighs> and this is something that I think a lot of people don't know that what you said about、um, sign language. It's not just like a a transcription to signs of spoken language, right? It's its own thing, which is very interesting. 
I got really excited about this stuff during my research and I was thinking like, God, we got to like get into sign language a little bit on our podcast. And then I realized like how painful it would be for two people who don't actually know this language to be describing motions of our hands. I'm probably butchering it. Yeah. So we've touched in previous episodes on person-first language, and I wanted to bring it up again. Mm. Um, So uh, person-first language is saying instead of an epileptic person, for instance, you say a person with epilepsy um, to sort of put the person before the disability, um, which is thought of as more respectful when you're talking about um, a lot of disabilities. But most of the deaf community totally rejects person-first language, Mm -hmm. and they prefer this identity-first framing, so a deaf person. And that's generally because being deaf in the community is not considered a deficit or an impairment of any kind. It's actually like a point of pride. Right. And actually, on this note, just to mention the term hearing impaired, which you might be familiar with. Right. Like this program was captioned for the hearing impaired, that thing that flashes. Yeah, which I definitely saw all the time growing up, right? Mm -hmm. That terminology is 100% out of favor and is considered offensive pretty much across the board. um, Because again, being deaf is not considered a loss. On that note, uh, I want to add one more term that I learned in researching this topic which is deaf gain. Here's Caroline. It's about the things that you gain from deafness. So things like, you know, I have, since my, you know, my own hearing loss has started, I've learned ways that I can interpret the world differently. Like even little things, like I do sound design because I can read the waveform and I can identify sound based on what it looks like. Like I can tell, oh, that's a breath. Oh, that's a mouth noise. That's something in the background. Even if I can't hear it, I can see what it is. And that's a cool thing. And I don't know if I had full hearing, I don't know if I would be as good a sound designer. I don't know if I would notice certain things as much. And things like just gaining a certain level of empathy, I think, in a way I can understand how frustrating it can be when you can't communicate. I know how frustrating it is to try and like zero in on something when there's so much going on around you. Like if I'm trying to have a conversation in a crowd, it's so overwhelming. And I'm just like, I can't, this is so frustrating, Um, which I think has made me a better parent because my son is autistic and sometimes he gets overwhelmed. And I'm like, oh, okay. So right now it's because he can't focus on this and it's frustrating him. Okay. I know what, I know how that feels. Let me see if I can help you with that. That's really cool. I think it's a really interesting way to reframe what we often refer to as hearing loss, right? Mm -hmm. But there's clearly this whole world of culture and community and new perspectives within the deaf and hard of hearing spectrum. Totally. I think that's a, a really good place to leave it. Absolutely. Thanks for listening. 